The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So we're working through a, a, a series, it's called Exodus, Our Journey, and the idea that we mentioned last week is that, you know, really, life is a journey, right? In fact, it's a journey of journeys, and the thing that determines the trajectory in your life, where you're heading, not only where you're going today after we get done here, or, but in general, like bigger picture, where are you going in life, has to do with what or who you are worshiping, that we are all worshipers, and how that's why the book of Exodus starts with a people in bondage, a people in slavery, but it ends with God telling them, this is how you worship me. Because the thing that the, the Israelites needed to be delivered from wasn't just uh, their actual bondage and slavery and making bricks and building pyramids and cities and whatever else they were doing, but the thing that they needed to be delivered from was from worshiping worthless or vain idols, the things that you and I need to be delivered from. When we say vain idols, we're not talking about like actual, like something that you have set up in your living room, but what in your life do you deem to be of highest value? And the way that you can do a test and know what is it in the world that I'm worshiping, what do I deem to be of highest value is what if it happens tomorrow morning, it makes the rest of your week. And if it doesn't happen tomorrow morning, the rest of your day, the rest of your week is ruined. That's what you worship. It could be your looks, it could be your relationship, it could be your job, it could be uh, your bank account, it could be all kinds of things, but you and I always worship something. We find something of highest value, and that's what we set ourselves on. And so our desire as we go to the book of Exodus is that we would see ourselves in the people of Israel, the children of Israel's journey, in their exodus, which is what that means. It means to be leaving something and going somewhere else. It's their journey, that we would find ourselves in that journey. That, that you would see and I would see myself in a people that God rescued for himself and for his glory in amazing ways. And how many people in here, like, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, like, if you look back in your life, the way God rescued you is amazing. But just as you and I do, the Israelites forgot. And they would forget over and over and over again that we would see ourselves in that story. And that we would see ourselves as a body of Christ in the story of the people of Israel itself. A people of bondage who were pulled out of slavery and made into a nation before they weren't a nation. They were just like some people descended from a guy named Abraham. And then he, makes, he takes them out of Egypt and he makes them into a nation. Just like he brings us out of our bondage and slavery individually. And together he creates a new people, his church for his glory. A place for his presence to dwell so the background as we head into chapter 2 is that uh, there was a guy named Abraham, and, or his name was Abram at the time, and he was just kind of out chilling around, and God appeared to him, and he said, here's the deal, Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to be my favored one, and you're going to have a lot of, uh, your babies are going to have a lot of babies, they're going to have a lot of babies, and you're going to have a, a big old nation that's going to come from you. And I'm going to take your descendants, your people, that I'm going to make into a nation, and I'm going to make them a great nation It's going to be for the, the benefit of the entire world itself. But he has a, a kid named 
uh, Isaac, and Isaac has a kid named Jacob, who also his name is Israel, so that's where we get the name Israel from, because that was he was also known as Israel. He had 12 sons. He had a favorite son named Joseph. He made him a coat of many colors. That would be like, uh, you know, I don't know, back in the day, whenever I was a kid, he gave, he gave him a pair of Jordans, and he didn't give any of the other kids a pair of Jordans, and the, his other, the other kids got jealous about that, and they were jealous enough that they, you know, they threw him into a pit and act like he was dead, and they sold him into slavery. So, you know, rough neighborhood, and Joseph ends up in Egypt. He's sold into slavery and goes through some really rough stuff. And then he ends up in an incredible uh, line of circumstances. He ends up being the second in charge of all of Egypt, which was at the time the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. And then Joseph pulls the rest of his brothers. They all come out and they camp out in Egypt and they start to live there. And God blesses them. And they start to have more and more and more babies. The prophecy, the promise to Abraham, which is what his name was turned into, starts to become true. They, they, this 70 people that end up going to Egypt end up being thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. And it, they become so large that the nation of Egypt, they get kind of jealous. Like picture here, well, no, it, you know. I'm not going to name any names, but politicians who get, you know, have problems with people coming into the nation and think, hey, they're, they're sapping all our resources and energy, and they could turn on us one day. So, so I'm not naming any names. They could turn on us one day, and they said, here's what we're going to do. Uh, they didn't send them back home, though. They turned them into slaves. And so they turned them into slaves, and they forced them to work for them and to build the pyramids and whatever else they, they built. They ruthlessly controlled them. The more they controlled them, the more babies they had and the mightier they became. They couldn't keep them down. It's interesting how the thing that, when Joseph ended up going to Egypt and uh, he, he, his brothers ended up, and his father ended up coming to live there, it's because there's a great famine in all the world. And Joseph is the one who helps save them from death, from certain death, and provides for them. So Egypt becomes something of salvation for them. But what was salvation for them? ends up turning into bondage. And this is just a side note. I don't know about you, but I think I've experienced that more than a couple of times. The thing that I think like brings me happiness and salvation and joy and encouragement ends up being the thing that fast forward a few weeks, a few years down the road is the very thing that brings me bondage. I don't know if you've experienced that. But when we try to have our, God provided for them, but when we try to build our own salvation, it often turns into bondage. And these people, they live in Egypt for 400 years and they're toiling under slavery. They're being ruthlessly controlled and pushed down. And the incredible thing and the sad thing and the, the thing that the author of Exodus wants us to feel in these first two chapters is that this just sense of longing and loneliness, a need for help, but no help seems to be there. I don't know if you've experienced that in your life. Seasons and periods of time when you felt like you needed help and God seemed to be silent. He seemed to be a million miles away like he didn't care. 400 years of silence. God spoke to Abraham and they had this awesome thing that they remember and it's passed down from generation to generation. Like God chose our father Abraham, and he's going to make us a great nation, and we're going to be a blessing for all the other nations in the world, but yet we're under slavery and under bondage. God is seemingly missing. 
And then we get to today's passage, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. There's three things that we're going to see in this passage today. We're going to see God's promise. We're going to see people, or specifically women in this case, which is pretty awesome, courageously acting. And we're going to see God providentially working. We're going to see God's promise. We're going to see people courageously acting. And we're going to see God providentially working. In Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, you can turn there if you like, or you can just uh, listen that promise that we've been talking about that God made to Abraham, this would be what would be passed down as these, uh, the children of Israel are in Egypt. This would be passed down from generation to generation. Like when you, when you sit down with your kids and like you, you, if you, any of your parents, you start to like indoctrinate your kids and tell them like, hey, this is who we are and this is what we're about. It began very early for me with Sophia and then Landon uh, making them wear orange a nice little beautiful tiger paw on their little onesie. Uh, I remember sitting with Sophia. She couldn't even talk. She couldn't sit up. But I would, I would sit with her watching a Clemson game just so like if she would get it by osmosis. Like, hey, this is who we are and what we're about. And they would pass down from generation to generation. Hey, this is who we are. God appeared to Abraham, your great, great, great grandfather, and he made him this promise. Genesis 17, 1 through 8. When Abram was 99 years old, when he was just a spry chicken. Which, by the way, I'm not holding against. We have a, a new guy here, Donnie. Really awesome. He came early this morning and he helped us set up. Donnie, as we're setting up, asked me how old I was. And when I told him, he was shocked because he said he thought I was about 45. So I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit injured this morning. Nothing wrong with 45, but I'm not 45. I'm 37. So you know, if, you, if you people guess your age, you want them to guess the other end. And I'm like, hey, man, I didn't go much sleep last night. Yesterday was tough. We were around the, but I just. It, <laughs> Genesis 17, 1 through 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. By the way, this is not related to the sermon necessarily, but isn't it interesting when people meet God in Scripture, they end up falling on their face? When you see him for who he is, it kind of humbles you. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. That means you're going to have, your kids are going to have lots of kids. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to, and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So you have these people who are slaves or under bondage there. And God is seemingly silent, but they keep passing down generation to generation. God made this promise. Things are bad, but God made this promise that we're going to multiply, which in, in the ancient world was a, was a huge thing. Large families had an advantage over small families because you had more hands to work. 
And so he's going to multiply us greatly, and he's going to make us a nation. Kings are going to come from us, and he's going to give us our own land. And that may have seemed like a pipe dream, like pie in the sky at the time, but they pass it down from generation to generation. God's promise to them, they held on to it. They kept that in front of them all the time. So then when we see in Exodus, in our, in our passage, at the end of, actually, go back up one verse, at the end of chapter 2, we covered last week, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, because again, they feel threatened by all the Israelites that are multiplying, getting more and more, then Pharaoh commanded to all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. That was their idea to keep the population tamped down. They can't fight back if they don't have boys and they can't keep on having Hebrew babies if they don't have boys, if they only had girls. Can you imagine that kind of command coming down? That feeling that must happen whenever you're, you're so excited you have a, you're gonna have a baby and that anticipation the Hanagans are going through that right now. The anticipation coming up. You're getting ready to have a baby, getting ready to have a baby. Except they didn't know it was going to be a boy or a girl. And so as excited as you are, you have this feeling of dread. What if it's a boy? What are we going to do? What if they catch us? What if they hear the baby? What if somebody walks by the window and hears a baby and they come and check and they find out it's a boy? They'd be having babies in secret, dark, trying to keep it as quiet as they possibly can. And that's what we read now. A man from the house of Levi, that was one of the sons of Israel, went and took as his wife a Levite, so it was another woman of his clan. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, and what that means is that she just saw like she she saw him and she loved him. She hid him for three months. It's when the little baby is like a little tiny and you can keep him hidden. Uh, not that you would ever try this, but I used to do this with, with Megan. Don't now ever do this, but I used to do this uh, game with Megan where I, I would, well, I did a couple of things. One is I, I, for my mom, she came over one day and I took Sophia right before I saw her walking in and I took Sophia and I rolled her up in a blanket and I told her it was a baby tamale. And she, my mom didn't like, she didn't think that was very funny. The baby, baby was very safe in this blanket. I like rolled the baby up. And then the, I would just, other, I would just other game with Megan that I'm not, I'm very, I love our children. But I take this, I take Sophia and I, we have her like swaddled up with the, with the blanket around her. And I take Sophia and I like, uh, like lay her behind the chair. And then when Megan come in, she's like, where's Sophia? I'm like, you're getting colder. You're getting colder. It'd be like, it was like, it was like baby, it, I don't know, it was, it was fun. It was a fun game. Megan wasn't as big a fan about that game. But you can keep the baby quiet when they're very little. But when they start to get older, they start to move around like Ryan and like make, making some noises you can't control. Like, what are you going to do then? And so she came up with this plan that felt like an ingenious plan at the time because the command that, uh, that, Pharaoh gave the, the people was uh, that every daughter, every son sorry, that's born, you're going to take that son of the Hebrews and throw it into the river. And so she said, well, I'll put my son in the river and I can hide him there. Because all of, the, it, the river would have been a very busy place, a lot of stuff happening there. All of Egypt, Egyptian society revolved around the river. That was their lifeblood. And so there would be a lot of noise there. Maybe they wouldn't be able to hear the baby as much. There might be some bulrushes around. You can hide the baby in there. And so she, she, she took this, uh, this piece. of the, this interesting, the wording here that's used is the same word that's used for ark in the story about Noah. It's kind of an interesting thing. 
Uh, so she took this little little basket or a little little deal, and she she covered it with uh, bitumen and pitch, which is basically like like asphalt. It would have been very easy to get in this part of Egypt. And then she put the child and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. So she said, "Hey, I'll hide the baby. There's a lot of stuff going on by there. Maybe they won't hear him cry, and then I can come and secretly come and take care of the baby." But it's it seems like a weird thing for us to do. But she's trying to find, find, figure out a way. How do I keep this baby alive? It's a very courageous move. A lot of mothers here would do the same thing, figure out something like, how can I protect this child? And so she put the baby in this little basket that she had covered with asphalt so it would float, wouldn't take on any water, and she put it down into the river. And then she told her daughter, I want you to stay here and watch. Make sure the baby is safe. What we see happening here is Jochebed, we'll learn her name later on, acts in a shrewd and a courageous manner. Just like any mother would do, but it would certainly be coursing through her brain. God made this promise that we will be a large nation. We're not going to die out. Pharaoh might be the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Egypt might be the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, but they can't kill us off because God made a promise to us. And so she acts according to that promise and puts the baby in the river as some way, desperate attempt to try to save that baby's life. She acts in a courageous way based upon a promise that God had given the people of Israel that had been passed down for generation to generation and that had to have emboldened her decision. God will make a way. I don't know what way it will be, but God will make a way based upon his promise. And then we see the way that God works. Now the daughter of Pharaoh, verse 5, came down to bathe at the river. That would have been a normal thing. So, so she comes down there. The river was, was, uh, was the, the center of Egyptian society. It was probably the cleanest water that was around. And it was a holy place for the Egyptians. That's probably one reason they think that maybe uh, Pharaoh told them to throw the babies into the river to kill them instead of something else because they considered the, uh, the river itself was a god. And so it might have taken away some of uh, feelings of guilt. I'm not like killing this baby another way. I'm actually throwing them into the river, giving it up to the god to do with it as they see fit. But she comes down to bathe at the river and she sees the basket. Now, this is kind of a crazy thing to have happened. She opens it, and she saw the child, and the baby was crying, and she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, here, Moses' sister, will figure out her name is Miriam later. She's watching what's going to happen. And instead of the baby staying hidden, somebody discovers the baby, and can you imagine what must be going through her insides and in her mind as she sees the one who has discovered the baby is one of the daughters of Pharaoh. The guy who commanded that all the babies be killed. Can you imagine that feeling, mothers, daughters, sisters, if you see like the baby has been discovered by the very daughter, the one who wants it killed? And then something crazy providentially unimaginably happens. 
Pharaoh's daughter, instead of calling for the guards to come kill the baby or herself throwing the baby into the river because she sees it as a Hebrew, she loves the baby. And her, desire, her first thought isn't to get rid of the baby, but it's like, I want to be this baby's mother. Now, how does this happen? We don't know. It could be like the Ten Commandments, the movie portrays, like she wasn't able to have kids, and if a woman was unable to have kids at this time, it would, she would have been considered cursed by the gods. She couldn't be able to have children. And so when she sees this baby, her first thought is, I can have a child. Now think of all the things that had to happen at this moment for this to occur in the way that it does. The baby would have to be placed at just the right place in the river, at just the right time. Pharaoh's daughter and only Pharaoh's daughter would be the one who had to come down to the river near the baby. And how she discovers whether she sees the basket or hears the baby crying through the basket, we don't know. But that would be her that would discover it. And that it wouldn't be any of her attendants that went down into the water with her. It says that they were up on the shore and she went in by herself. That she would be alone to be the one to discover the baby. Think of all the things that would have had to happen, not only on that day or that moment, but throughout the course of the days prior to that. That, like, Why did she come to this spot of the river to bathe? Is it a place that she regularly came or did she happen to come today? All the things that would have had to have providentially occur for this moment to occur. It's amazing. It's mind-boggling. And then she took pity on him. She loved him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister spoke up. So she speaks courageously. Her sister probably would have been scared out of her mind. His sister would have been scared out of her mind, but yet she takes the courage to speak to the princess of Egypt and say, shall I go and call you a nurse in the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Now this is incredibly courageous and incredibly smart and shrewd. Instead of her running home to her mom and saying, it's terrible, you'll never believe what happened, Pharaoh's daughter found him and she didn't, she's not going to kill him, she's going to take her for her own and then freak out. She acted smartly and shrewdly and said, hey, yeah, you can have him as your son. But how about I go get somebody, a Hebrew woman who can nurse him and care for him because they didn't have like bottles and formula that can care for them and nurture him. And Pharaoh's daughter said, yeah, that sounds like a great plan. And when she told, came to his mother, he imagined the feelings that this mother would have, this mixture of feelings of, of relief but yet dread that you know, like, I'm gonna, somebody else is going to raise this baby as their child. Because it says that at the end, that she became Pharaoh's, I mean, she became Moses' mother. Pharaoh's daughter did. But in the meantime, his actual mother was able to care for him, nurture him, and love him. Now, this is interesting because See, the people of Israel, they're stuck in Egypt, right? They're under bondage. They haven't heard from God in years and years and years. He seems to be silent. But they, what they need is they need a deliverer. They need somebody to come and help them and save them out of their bondage. And if you're slaves and you don't have education, you don't have uh, 
money. You don't have empowerment. You have no standing in society. Like, how is somebody going to be raised up from your midst to deliver you? The one who would come to deliver them would have to be one of them, actually. He had to be a, one of the Hebrews, one of the Israelites who would actually, like, be one of them. He'd also have to be somebody who would care about them. But he'd have to be somebody who would have a, the ability to exert influence, so this is the unique place that Moses placed in as a child, as a baby, as a, ch- as a kid. He's a Hebrew. He's reared by his parents for his first three years. Those incredibly important years where they're instilling with you with values and identity. So he's identifying and loving the Hebrew people. He understands that he is one. And then he goes to be one of the grandchildren of Pharaoh himself. And he's educated and he's empowered. And he grows up and living like a prince in Egypt. It's an amazing place that he's put in. The only one that could be in a position to end up delivering the people of Israel. And think about this. God used even the evil, sinful plan of Pharaoh. Because was the plan of Pharaoh to kill all the baby boys evil? Was it sinful? Absolutely. But God used that plan of Pharaoh's in order to put Moses in a position to become the deliverer of his people. Moses never would have made it into Pharaoh's house if Pharaoh hadn't himself been the one who made the command for him to be killed. That's why he was placed in the basket in the river and discovered and adopted. Pharaoh's own command. He's the most powerful man in the most powerful country in the face of the earth. Pharaoh's own plan is circumvented by God himself providentially moving in the background where nobody saw it. Nobody knew it at the time. They felt like God was a million miles away, and yet God was working in the background. It's called providence. The meaning of the word providence means to see or to foresee. And what that means is it's not like just to see ahead, but it's to see ahead and to make sure that that happens. It's sort of like that feeling. I was watching... um, I was watching football last night, and uh, you, you see like a, a punt returner or a kick returner, and he's standing there, and you see the kick. I, I saw there's a, an article in one of the papers, I think New York Times or some, something this week. It's called The, the Longest Five Seconds in Sports. And it's that, that, those five seconds where that player's standing there and he sees the ball get kicked off, and it's way up in the air, and it's coming down, and all the other team... Every one of the other team are all barreling down to disconnect him from the ball that is now coming in. So he has to see the ball. He has to see the people that are coming. He has to anticipate what is going on. He has to have the best kick returners are able to see where the ball is coming, position themselves for the ball, see where the people are coming, and position himself so he can make it through them to the end zone. That's providence. God not only sees ahead, but he anticipates what is coming and positions things in such a way so that his plan is accomplished. That's what we see happen here in this story. Jochebed didn't know what was going to happen. Pharaoh's daughter didn't know what was going to happen. Miriam didn't know what was going to happen on this day. God providentially foresaw and maneuvered things in such a way that his plan would be accomplished at that moment. The word... Providence means prevision and provision all at the same time. 
So to see God's wisdom, whenever he's unfolding his plan, he had a plan here. The people in Israel, they probably felt like God would, had forgotten them or maybe he wasn't even real. But God's plan is multifaceted. It is, if you've ever heard of a theological term called manifold. Anybody ever heard that term? Uh, I, I was in a conversation with Doug and David yesterday, and the word manifold came up. It wasn't this meaning. They were talking about cars. I had no idea. I wanted to ask Doug, like, what is a manifold? But I felt like, like I was going to be stupid if I asked him that, so I just let it roll. And like, yeah, that would probably be hard to put that manifold on there. Um, <laughs> But in this case, when the Bible or the theologians talk about manifold, it means multi-sided or multifaceted. It means that when God comes at a problem, when God looks at the line of human history, he doesn't come at it like we do where he comes at it linearly. Like this thing happens and then this thing happens and this thing happens like a row of dominoes that have cause and effect all the way down. He comes at it from every side up and down and around and and in other dimensions. He sees it all at the same time in a way that you and I cannot see. He comes at history from every vantage point. He's not confined to simple linear actions. He sees the entire board at the same time. A grandmaster in chess I was reading about, about the, them this weekend because I'm a geek. And a, a grandmaster in chess, I was reading, like, what makes somebody a grandmaster in chess? And so I saw, like, what accomplishments have to happen and how rare it is. But they're talking about, like, what are the qualities of a grandmaster in chess? And the qualities, one of the main qualities of a grandmaster in chess is that he has, has uh, the natural talent and ability. He's super smart. And he also has the experience under his belt so that when he comes to the board and he looks at the board, he instantly sees in no time at all where all the pieces are and what all could happen if this move occurs. When you make a move against a grandmaster, he sees where you're going, what could happen, what he could do. He could see, he sees instantaneously every single thing that could happen on that board. And that's the way God comes at history. God is the grand master of history. He sees it all at play, and he is working it all at the same time. He's aware of every space, every piece, every possible action, every subsequent possibility, all at the same time without any effort. Because you see, God's providence is informed by his nature. Let's think about it for just a second. Stick with me. God is infinite. That means he's not confined to time. You and I, like, we have one second to one second to one second. God sits outside of time. So when he comes at problems and issues, when he comes at his plan for human history, he doesn't just come at it just linearly and along. He comes up from outside time working his plan all at the same time. God is, and this can blow our minds, and it should blow our minds, God is at the same time, he is past, present, and future. Get your mind around that. At this very moment, God is present 1,000 years ago. And God is present with every molecule, every atom at this moment. And he is present 100, 1,000, however long it should take for Christ to tarry, he is present at every moment throughout history, without exerting any sort of effort. I like to think of myself sometimes as a fairly smart guy. I like to think of myself sometimes as pretty good at multitasking. The truth is I'm not really that good at it. I can only do like one thing at a time, fairly decent. There's only a, there's a short list of things that I'm good at. 
But if I'm going to think about things, I have to stop thinking about this and start thinking about something else. And then, like, you know, like, Megan kind of gets irritated sometimes because, like, yesterday at the, uh, uh, at the cookout, like, I'm cooking out, I'm flipping the burgers, and I have no idea where the kids are. Like, I saw them five minutes ago. I saw they're over here by the door. And then, like, I'm like, well, I hope they stay there because I'm concentrating on this. I can't multitask. God, at any given time, knows where every molecule is and where it will be five minutes from now or five years from now without exerting any effort, expending any amount of his intellect. God is infinite He is omniscient. That means he is all-knowing. And he is omnipotent. That means he is all-powerful. There is nothing that God can't do. Because everything that you and I know is in... Think about the most powerful person, the most powerful thing that you know. That sits inside God's creation. He created that without effort. The Bible says he spoke the world into existence. He didn't have to crank it up and get it going. He just spoke and it happened. He is omniscient. He is infinite and he is omnipotent. He accomplishes and can accomplish everything that he wants to accomplish. What that means, let's roll through this really quickly. That means, first of all, that God upholds all things. Colossians 1.17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. This very moment, he is holding creation together at the very core of everything. He is the one who holds it together. Yes, science. Yes, this and that. But he is the one in the very core of it that makes it stay held together. God upholds and God directs. Daniel 2, 20 through 21. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God is upholding all things and he is directing all things according to his desired plan. God accomplishes. It's another area of his providence. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Think about that. I saw a guy yesterday. uh, He made a really awesome uh, play in the Alabama game last night. He scored the touchdown. He jumped up and he was I mean he was exultant. He was like he was yelling and screaming and he knocking his arms together like this and this is God in his humble way saying My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Ephesians 1, 11, in him. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will, which is what we see in this story. Jochebed was working, acting courageously according to the promise. Pharaoh was just, Pharaoh's daughter was just trying to get a bath. But God was accomplishing his purpose. I mean, sometimes he will use natural and he will use supernatural means. Sometimes we say, like, hey, it's a God thing. 
right? Like that's a kind of Christian talk. We say, oh man, that happened yesterday. Like that was a God thing. And I'm not denying, absolutely. But sometimes God works through everyday things. Pharaoh's daughter was just going down to get cleaned. She found a son that would end up delivering God's people. Change the course of human history. Sometimes it's natural, sometimes it's supernatural means. That means sometimes it's through a miracle and sometimes it's through everyday occurrences. Sometimes it's according to our plans. Jochebed had a plan to, to save her son. She didn't know how it was going to end, but she had a plan to save her son. She did. Pharaoh's daughter, again, just trying to get clean. Sometimes it's a surprise. But however and whenever, God is at work. God not only upholds and directs and accomplishes, but he governs. I know this is a lot of scripture, but I just wanted to, to, for us to just be awash in the scripture references this morning about these things. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath. And everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God governs this world. What that means is, therefore, God alone rightfully deserves all the glory. Look, Jochebed acted in faith and in courage. Moses would end up being a courageous, uh, righteous, upstanding, brave man. But God gets all the glory because he's the one who set it all up from the very beginning, through the middle, all the way to the end. Now, there are certain ripples of this truth that are kind of difficult to get our head around. Because if if this is true, if God is upholding and he's directing and he's accomplishing and he's governing all things, whether it's supernatural or natural, then what do I do about my daily circumstances? Like, how do I view them? And, And what about, like, unexpected life events that occur? And what about not only just the good stuff that happens when the son is saved, but what about the bad things? It brings a lot of questions. And I don't necessarily have all the answers to them, but I would encourage you in your C groups this week, in your community groups this week, to start to flesh this out. Talk about it with each other. Ask the difficult questions. But with the knowledge that God is providentially in control. These are big questions that are worth wrestling over. It is God's providence that this world exists. It's God's providence that it's sustained. It's by his providence that you are alive at this moment. It is his providential care that has brought you to where you are now. Jesus told his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. That means that Jesus Christ is the God of providence. That means that all of the power of God's providential care is directed towards the saving and preserving of his people. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, maybe you've gone to church all your life, but you've never put your faith and trust in him, you've never experienced the new life that comes from from being a believer in Jesus Christ, it is his providence that has brought you to this very moment. A mundane Sunday, but this could be the moment 
the providentially directed moment that you place your faith and trust in him and become a new creature in Christ. Or maybe you're a struggling believer here this morning and you feel forgotten, you feel hopeless, you feel like you're barely limping along. Remember, 400 years passed for the Israelites between them hearing God or seeing God move in their lives. They didn't even know what to call their God. He didn't have even given them their name yet. They just knew he was the God of Abraham. The days were dark and he was seemingly absent. But all the while, God was working in the background for their good and his glory. So when you and I are in dark days, difficult times, it may not necessarily make it easier, but it can give us hope and peace because we know that God is providentially working his plan. You and I don't see the whole board, but he sees it all. And he is all powerful. That's why for all of us, we should leave here today. We should, as we approach the table to celebrate the body and blood of Jesus Christ shed for us, on our behalf to accomplish what we could not accomplish on our own, it should give us peace and hope and courage. You and I can act encouraged in our daily life to do what God has called us to do according to the promises and commands that he's given us because we know God is providentially in control no matter what things look like around us. There's no Adam that moves apart from his knowledge and providence and he, and he is working all things together for good for those of us who are called according to his purpose. That means that God's promises and his providence should give us great courage and peace and hope as believers. Let's pray. Well, this morning uh, we come to you and from all kinds of different backgrounds For some of us, uh, you may seem uh, very close to us and very real and very fresh, our relationship with you. And for some of us, it may feel like it's really dark days. But God, you are all-powerful. You are all-knowing. You are infinite. Father, I pray that there would be a, a taste of that upon our lips and upon our hearts and upon our minds this morning as we celebrate your body and blood, and we worship you. And as we leave here, we leave buoyed by the knowledge that you are in control and you are working your plan. So therefore, we can have peace and hope and act in courage. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us 
Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.